Welcome to the Tuesday, 10th of October, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich at Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, you'll hear about a parade in Belhaven of horses, carriages, and nicely decorated buckboards in 1890. On Greenwich Life as it is and was in 1919, Irwin Edwards shared the contents of interviews with some of the town's wealthy newcomers as to why they selected Greenwich as their home. We'll go back to 1894 to learn about the tall stone spire of the Second Congregational Church. You'll hear about a pre-Halloween hoax involving Greenwich's undertakers, about Columbus Day in 1914, a honeymoon spoiled, and lots more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides 
general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203 485 7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203 485 7595. It's time for Greenwich in the Gilded Age. This was the period of Greenwich, Connecticut's history in the late 19th into the early 20th century where people of great wealth came to Greenwich and bought up farms and established landed estates that included beautiful mansions, uh, designed gardens, and so forth. Um, And um, uh, I have a very interesting event that happened. This happened in 1890, and the date on this would be October 4th. Uh, It was published in the Greenwich Graphic. Um, It was a parade, a very interesting parade that took place in Belhaven. Um, And the the headline on this in the story is Buckboards Gaily Decorated. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you know what a buckboard is? You know, I ask you that. Uh, Think about it for a moment. I am about to tell you, obviously. What is a buckboard? It is a vehicle that is of North American origin. And um, I I have this online. And it follows an open four-wheeled horse-drawn carriage with seating that is attached to a plank stretching between the front and rear axles. Now, why did they call it a buckboard? Good question. It's called a buckboard because an extra board is added to the wagon box directly in front of the driver's seat. And what this does, um, according to this source, is that it protects the driver and passengers from the mule or horse's hooves in the case they in case they buck. Um, and the board also um, acts as a footrest. Now, I'll tell you, it brought to mind when I first read this of a gentleman who uh, pulls a cart, uh, and I have seen him, and maybe you have as well over the years, uh, over in Old Greenwich, and especially over at Greenwich Point, or Todd's Point, as some of us call it. Um, and uh, that would be an example, if you see it, of a uh, buckboard. So I'd like to share this interesting a story about this uh, parade that was held in Belhaven uh, in the uh, the year 1890, and it goes as follows. The Parade of Belhaven, a novel and pleasing sight many people present. Um, let's see. The ladies who contested for the prize, the winners, description of the spectacle. It must have been really something to see, especially since this took place over in, um, in, in Belhaven. It is safe to say that a more costly and perhaps a greater display of horses 
Carriages and buckboards never took place this side of New York, not even at Newport, then was exhibited at Belhaven on last sun, uh, Saturday afternoon at the Buckboard Parade. The afternoon was lowery, lowerly, um, and there were, that's their word, not mine, and there were signs of rain, but this didn't keep people away from Belhaven. We would hardly dare give an estimate of the number of carriages filled with occupants that were drawn up in line at the sides of the street near where the procession was to pass, but it was a good many. This in itself was a great display for nearly all if not all the summer residents were on the ground of their handsome turnouts, quote-unquote, and many of our permanent residents had also driven down to Belhaven to view the spectacle. It was a brilliant and fashionable assemblage. Promptly at 3.30 o'clock, that would be in the afternoon, the procession started, headed by Mr. Witherell's English coach, drawn by four horses. I'm assuming that the Mr. Witherell that they uh, are referring to here was Nathaniel Witherell. Um, besides this, four in hand, there were three others in the procession. These were driven by their owners, Mr. W.L. Latimer of Stamford, Mr. E.H. Johnson, and Mr. W.K. Lawson, making four four-in-hands in the parade, all different in design by the terms coach, drag, tally-ho, and four-in-hand. <laughs> On the top of each uh, were seated ladies and gentlemen decorated with bouquets and ribbons, and at the rear of each sat a footman with his long horn. The following ladies had intended to enter the contest for the prizes to be given for the buckboard parade. And those names are Miss Helen Benedict. I'm assuming that that would be someone related to Commodore E.C. Benedict. Miss Edna C. Smith. Miss Marie Trimble. Miss E.B. Curtis. Miss Edna Johnson. Mrs. F.M. Freeman. Miss Louise Willard. Miss Isabel Sykes, and that's spelled S-E-I. XAS, Miss Fanny Rathborn, Miss Lulu Benedict, Miss Agnes Eli, Miss Helen Carter, Miss Tipple Wright, and Miss Juliet Curtis. Of these nine only appeared in the parade. The spectacle was certainly a beautiful one, as they appeared driving prancing horses decorated with flowers and ribbons, the buckboards completely hidden by the floral display, the onlookers could not help uttering expressions of delight and amazement. It was indeed a rare sight. The dresses of nearly all the ladies were the same color as the flowers and ribbons, of with which the horses and buckboards were decorated. Mrs. E.B. Curtis drove a bay horse, and her buckboard was a bower of flowers, the color being yellow and green. The flowers were heliotropes, and the green silmac, silax, or smilax, sorry, at the sides of the dashboard were yellow pompon plumes, which were kept in place by yellow ribbons. Over her head was an umbrella decorated in the same way. Miss Marie Trimble drove a bay horse, and her buckboard was one mass of wildflowers and green leaves, the color of the flowers being lavender and white, being the small flower which grows so profusely about here in the fall season. Miss Helen Benedict drove a very gay bay horse, her buckboard being concealed by artificial white flowers and green leaves. 
Miss Louise Benedict drove a bay horse, her buckboard being decorated with artificial red flowers and red ribbons with rye or wheat stalks. Miss Edna Johnson drove a small spirited sorrel horse with a beautiful white buckboard striped, striped it with gold and trimmed with white and gold colored flowers with ribbons to match. Mrs. F.M. Freeman drove a handsome bay horse, her buckboard being decorated with wildflowers, a lavender color. Miss Louise Willard held the reins over a bay horse, her buckboard being profusely decorated with goldenrod tied with lavender-colored ribbons. Miss Fanny Rathborn drove a high-stepping bay horse to the a buckboard, most exquisitely decorated with cut flowers, the rear of her vehicle being a bank of choice white roses mingled with asters. Miss Tibby White drove a fine, large bay horse, her buckboard being completely enveloped in goldenrod and lavender-colored wildflowers tied in place with ribbons to match. Miss Agnes Eli guided a beautiful black horse with prancing gait, her pretty buckboard being charmingly decorated with green vines and red berries, tied in place with red ribbons. No one envied the judges in their delicate and arduous task of awarding the prizes, as each of the contestants in turn drove around the circle for them to inspect. It was a very hard matter to determine where the superiority of one over the other, over, yes, over the other was. But after some deliberation, the judges made their decisions, and the winners drove up in front of the cub house and were presented with beautiful and costly gifts suitable for ladies by Mr. Barrett, who made each an, uh, each an apt and graceful speech. The first prize for a general appearance was given to Miss Helen Benedict. The second prize for general appearance was awarded to Mrs. E.B. Curtis. The special prize for the handsomest horse was given to Miss Edna Johnson. The special prize for horsemanship to Miss Louise Willard. The special prize for the best decorated buckboard to Miss Lulu Benedict. The order on the grounds was perfect. There was no blockade, no confusion, and no accidents. The gentlemen who acted as outriders on horseback were Messrs. J.D. Barrett, W.A. Cop. J.H. Gurley Jr., C.L. Rathborn, and George Rowland. The judges were Messrs. George Winthrop Thorne, George P. DeForest Barton, and Russell D. Hyde. With a grand hop in the evening, this parade closed a brilliant season at the Newport on the Sound. The best kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis 
and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of coffee for good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableist for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates or its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. In October 1914, Columbus Day was celebrated in Greenwich in the form of a carnival. Um, the event was held at the Armory on Monday, October 12th. Um, my source on this is the Greenwich News, and it was published on Friday, October 2nd, 1914. Columbus Day will be celebrated by the young people of Greenwich with a special ball and carnival to be given at the Greenwich Armory under the direction of Mr. and Mrs. E. Payson Hatch, Jr., and with the support and assistance of an efficient committee representing the various interests of the town. There will be special features, including prize dancing contests. Eight of the popular young townspeople will present a spectacular dance in which they have been carefully trained and prepared. This dance will be in costume and is of unusual beauty. Arrangements have been made for special attractions for children in the afternoon. A fine orchestra has been engaged, refreshments will be served, and booths uh, have been provided with gifts appropriate to the celebration. Admission will be 50 cents and dancing 10 cents a dance. Well, we have news of a honeymoon that was spoiled 100 years ago. This would be in 
um, or early October of um, 1923. It made the front pages of the Greenwich News and Graphic, and I would like to share it with you. Honeymoon spoiled, three workmen struck by bridal couple's automobile. Oh dear. An automobile operated by Howard H. Altman of 892 Hancock Street, Brooklyn, who with his bride was on a honeymoon trip struck Thomas Taylor of 331 Atlantic Street, Stamford, Harry G. Clark of Atlantic Street, Stamford, and William Jones of 82 Water Street, Norwalk, employees of William H. Arthur Construction Company of Stamford, at the Colonel Thomas A. Mead Hill, West Putnam Avenue, near Brookside Drive, Tuesday afternoon. Now, I want to stop here before I go on and mention, of course, is that the Colonel Thomas A. Mead Hill would have been uh, where the Greenwich Library is today. The the house, the Thomas A. Mead house, was actually uh, moved in 1929 to uh, Eight Grove Lane, just around the corner uh, from there. And you can imagine this, of course, is the um, uh, the hillside where uh, uh, the on West Putnam Avenue, where the Acme uh, grocery store as well as Stop and Shop um, uh, across the street are located. It's a rather steep hill, and you can imagine what it must have been like um, before it was paved. It was quite treacherous, quite frankly. Taylor and Jones were taken to the Greenwich Hospital, where it was found that their injuries were only of a slight nature. Clark was not hurt. They were on duty at the place of accident where the State Highway Commission is laying a new road. It was while descending the steep hill that Altman attempted to turn from the unfinished part of the highway to the newly laid concrete and lost control of his car, which hit the men who had stepped in front of his machine to warn him. That wasn't a good idea. Captain Patrick Flanagan of the local police force with officers Nee and O'Connor investigated the accident and Altman was placed under arrest, his bail being fixed at $500. That's a lot of money in 1923. The case will come up in court tomorrow morning. Mr. and Mrs. Altman were married in New York about two weeks ago and had been touring through Canada and the northern states. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead, that's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. The Tall Stone Spire is a piece that was published in the Greenwich Graphic on April 21st, 1894. And of course, it is referring to the Stone Spire of the Second Congregational Church over on East Putnam Avenue uh, in Greenwich. And it was written by, of course, we know the name Ezekiel Lemondale, but uh, (laughs) the real name, of course, is Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. This is dated, interestingly, from Los Angeles, California. I guess that uh, Judge Hubbard was uh, traveling, who knows? Um, And it's dated March 23rd, 1894. And uh, it is um, goes as follows. My dear sir, 
I take the liberty of writing you in reference to the Second Congregational Church concerning which you are silent in your account of the 150th anniversary of that church, published in the graphic March 2nd, that would be 1894, I believe, and I am a native of Greenwich, and it has been my custom to tell my Western friends that the Congregational Church building is architecturally the handsomest in New England. What does your ancient friend think of it? Yours very truly, and the initials are RBM. I have no idea who that is, uh, but um, that is addressed to um, Ezekiel Lemondale, also known as Judge Frederick A. Hubbard. The genial Parker had a smile on his face yesterday morning as he handed me this letter. Before I had finished reading it, he had sent for my ancient friend. Mr. Parker enjoys the old man's visits, and that he may slip into the hotel quietly uh, without going through the office he has built expressly for his use, a private entrance with six new steps which adorn the front of the building. <laughs> well, that's nice. Up these steps, the old man came shortly after, and in the glowing warmth of the open fire read the above letter. Quote, Another Greenwich boy far away from home, unquote, said he, quote, An old academy youth, I'll warrant, how the boys used to enjoy sitting on the three-cornered rail in front of the academy and watch the stone walls of the new church rise. And after the spire was finished and a great flag floated from its pinnacle, a dozen of these boys witnessed from the street below a tea party gathered around the capstone. Several ladies and their husbands had climbed by ladders from scaffold to scaffold, till at the top they found chairs about the circular stone from which they ate a hearty meal, apparently undisturbed by the fact that they were 212 feet above the earth. Quote, there have been four congregational churches in this village, all occupying nearly the same location. Of the first house of worship in which the Reverend Mr. Morgan preached, no account has been preserved. The second was erected in 1730 and was a plain barn-like structure, 50 by 35 feet, surmounted by a turret, which was taken down in 1749. There was a door at each end, and one in the side twenty square pews were located about the sides of the house, and there were five in the south gallery. The structure gave way to the third house in 1798, which was a building similar to the Congregational Church at North Greenwich. I was quite familiar with this building, as are many of the readers of the graphic. Quote, I have often heard my father tell of the new stoves which were introduced in 1818 in the face of great opposition. On the first Sunday of their appearance, the congregation was almost overcome with the heat, but it was learned after the service that the stoves contained no fires and that the intense heat was but the force of imagination. <laughs> Quote, when the foundation for the present building was laid in 1854, it became necessary to move the old church about 100 feet south. Here it was continued in use until December 5, 1858, when Dr. Lindsley delivered in it the last sermon, which was in the form of a commemorative discourse. The following spring, the building was sold to Thomas A. Mead and Amos M. Brush, who moved it to the corner of Putnam Avenue and Mechanic Street. Mechanic Street, by the way, would be Sherwood Place today. Quote, but before moving it, the steeple was cut down, and hereby hangs a tale worth relating. 
The upright columns at the belfry were first sawed nearly off, Stephen Selleck and Henry Waring Howard, then apprentices to Stephen Sherwood, doing the work. A long rope had first been attached to the top of the spire and carried down beyond the old town house and tied to an ox cart belonging to Joseph Brush. Mr. Brush drove a sturdy pair of cattle, and that he claimed were equal to pulling the moon if he could get a line to it. <laughs> Quote, Everything being made fast, the cattle were started for a long pull and a steady one. The line grew taut, the steeple bent, then vibrated under the uneven tension, as the ox cart went up in the air and falling back to its place, the steeple snapped cart and oxen more than fifty feet up the road and landed them in one promiscuous heap. The steeple was finally conquered by loading the ox cart with heavy stones. Quote, After the building was set up in front of where the Mrs. Carl's house now stands, it became the center of the borough. There was a public hall on the second floor, and below was Dr. Aiken's drugstore, in which Charlie Gibbs was the reigning light, till the beating of deadly drugs with the pestle ruined his health, and he went away and soon died. It was in this drugstore that Dr. Sylvester Mead first appeared as the successor of Dr. Aiken, and here it was that George E. Schofield began to learn the art of prescription filling. Alexander Weed of Stamford had a jewelry store on the east side of the building, and in the rear, in a room that seemed to the boys full of mysteries, was Julius B. Curtis's law office. Across the street was the post office, and Joseph E. Brush had the principal store in town. I think I am justified in calling that spot the center of trade as well as the center of political discussion during the heated period of the war. I believe that, that would be referring to uh, the Civil War. Anyway, back to the story. Quote, In the afternoon of July 3, 1866, a small boy thoughtlessly tossed a lighted firecracker upon the roof of the old church, and at sunset it was a smoking ruin. Quote, but the present church building everyone knows. The bronzed mariner knows it as the big stone spire, and with one eye on the binnacle, he keeps it in view for more than 25 miles as he courses along the sound. Quote, oh, Leopold Edlitz, an architect of worldwide fame, it has been said that of all his successful designs, none are more graceful than that beautiful spire. Where can you drive in Greenwich and keep out of its sight? It looks at you as you ascend every hill. The gleaming of its weather vane reaches every valley. Between the delicate lines of its open columns and through the circles of its granite portholes, the setting sun will often pierce till it looks as though it were part of the azure blue without a foundation upon earth, resting only in the clouds. Quote, Tell your correspondent, Ezekiel, that everybody in Greenwich, whatever his creed, whatever his nationality, reveres that spire as one of the permanent, one of the beautiful things that Greenwich will be proud of for centuries to come. And that is signed by Ezekiel Lemondale, who we know, of course, as being Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. <laughs>
In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. In 1906, the Greenwich Police Department was founded, and we're very pleased to take our listeners back in time on Crimes and Misdemeanors, the segment of the show chronicling crime and law enforcement in the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I have, well, you know, we're, <laughs> before I begin, we are, of course, counting down to Halloween, and I have a story that dates from 1932, and I think this has to be one of the most unique Halloween prank, whatever you want to call it, that I have ever seen. And yes, it happened here in Greenwich. The headline on this, which it was covered on page one in the news graphic, 16-year-old girl makes false call for an undertaker. Police trace call to home on North Street will take no action but issued warning. Resident of Round Hill startled. Quote, perverted sense of humor, unquote, sends local undertakers to homes. Uh, and it goes, it goes as follows. Someone whom the police feel is equipped with a perverted sense of humor made a lot of trouble for Greenwich undertakers during the weekend by making false calls for an undertaker's services. Although no arrests were made, the police, indignant over the matter, warned today that a repetition of the act would bring due punishment. The hoax has not been worked here for about two years, the police said. One night this weekend, the office of Frank Haggerty, Greenwich undertaker, received a telephone call asking the firm to take charge of a body at the home of a prominent resident of Round Hill. The name and address was given. The informant, whom police said was a young woman, was told that Mr. Haggerty was out of town, but that, the, but that Fred Knapp and Son establishment would take care of the case. The voice over the telephone agreed, and Mr. Knapp was notified. When the undertakers arrived at the home of the Round Hill resident, a musician, the woman who answered the door was horrified at the thought that someone had told the undertakers the body of a dead woman was there. A complaint was made to the police, who, through a speedy investigation, found the prankster who had made the call. Sergeant Robert Fitzroy, who traced the telephone call, found that it had been made from telephone 129 at the home of William T. Dewart, North Street, by a 16-year-old girl. Undertaker Knapp said that he would not make a complaint to the police, but if the act was repeated, action would be taken. Besides Mr. Haggerty, Frank M. Riley, Art Street Undertaker, was had also been the victim of a joke within the past two weeks. Chief Patrick J. Flanagan, who was informed of the affair this morning, advised undertakers to immediately call back the home of the reported deceased and find out if anybody were really dead. And that was covered in the Greenwich News and, well, the Daily News and Graphic, Greenwich's only daily newspaper, 
on Monday, October 3rd, 1932. You know, for those of you that are newcomers to Greenwich, Connecticut, I would imagine that the biggest question that you are asked uh, if you move here is, why did you select Greenwich, Connecticut uh, to make your home? Believe it or not, this is a question that has been asked for well over 100 years. <laughs> um, and um, by that, I mean this, uh, that, um, of course, it's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was. This was a column that was uh, published in the Greenwich News and uh, Graphic. Um, and the columnist on this article that I have for you was Erwin Edwards. The, um, the headline on this is, Their Reasons Why They Selected Greenwich. And I thought that I would share this with you because, um, quite frankly, um, it, uh, it, the, the answers that were provided, I think, probably still uh, ring true today in the uh, 21st century. Some years ago, or about the time Greenwich property began changing title and the farms were being taken over by wealthy and prominent men for country homes, the Graphic published a number of interviews with some of these newcomers. The questions asked them were, quote, how did you come to select Greenwich for a home, unquote? What was also, quote, what was your particular reason for choosing this town for your country residence, unquote, and other inquiries of that nature? In every instance, the answer was practically the same, varied only by an individual's way of expressing their admiration of the natural beauties of the town, its healthful air, its charming views, its many attractive rural drives, its freedom from mosquitoes, its nearness to New York and the Sound. There follows a few short extracts from these interviews. Uh, Mr. E.C. Converse, that would be um, Edmund C. Converse, he was the uh, uh, man who uh, created uh, uh, Conyers Manor, we know it today as Conyers Farm, and he said this, Some 15 years ago, when I was looking around for a summer home, I sailed all over the Sound searching for the most beautiful spot, and in Greenwich, I at last found it. Mr. William G. Rockefeller said, quote, I, can real, I can truly say, that I have never seen in all my travels over the country a place of greater natural beauty than Greenwich. The fact of my selecting it as my summer home is pretty good evidence of that. Its proximity to the metropolis, too, and the ease with which one can travel to and from business makes it an ideal home for a New York businessman, unquote. The late T.P. Shunts said, quote, as regards Greenwich, however, I really must say that in all my life, and I have traveled a great deal, I have seldom seen a place with e which equals it in natural surroundings, its beautiful residences, and its pleasant people, unquote. The late A.W. Green, in answer to the question, you will find, quote, you will find that Greenwich is a pretty good place to live in, a question mark, of course, and he said, yes, the loveliest spot anywhere near New York. We came here and boarded for a season and were so pleased that we decided to buy and stay here permanently. For natural beauty, it is not excelled by any place I have ever seen, unquote. Mr. Ernest Thompson Seaton, in reply to the question, by the way, uh, Mr. Seaton, what led you to select Greenwich for your summer home, unquote, and he said, Quote, why? Because it is the only place near New York to live in. It is the most beautifully situated place anywhere near the metropolis. It is very healthful, and it is free from mosquitoes, 
What more could one desire, unquote? Well, that's good. Mr. George A. Helm, H-E-L-M-E is how the name is spelled, in answer to the question, you like Greenwich then? And um, he said, like it? Why, I am in love with it. I have never seen it equaled for beauty in any part of the world where I have visited. The late C.W. Post said, quote, We spent weeks touring through New England in my automobile, searching for an ideal spot for a summer home, and we and we did not find it until we reached Greenwich. Here we found one of the most picturesque situations imaginable with mammoth trees, an ideal brook, good roads, and pleasant surroundings, free from mosquitoes, the pest of nearly every summer place, and very conveniently located with regard to the metropolis, unquote. By the way, the metropolis would refer to New York City. Mr. J. Lincoln Steffens, in speaking of our town, reverted many times to his admiration of Greenwich, its picturesqueness, its hills and vales and moss-grown stone walls, the beautiful views of the sound and inland to be had on every side, its freedom from mosquitoes and nearness to New York. When asked, quote, how did you first happen to come to Greenwich, unquote, Mr. Frank J. Gould replied, quote, Friends told me of the place. I had been spending my summers on the Hudson, but two years ago the friends of whom I speak told me of the delights of Belhaven, and after coming and seeing for myself I rented the Freeman place for the summer. I found that it was cool even in the hottest days of midsummer, that the natural scenery was lovely, that there was no mosquitoes, and that the people were delightful. Therefore, I came here again this season. Mr. W.J. Wilgus, that's spelled W-I-L-G-U-S, said, quote, I have seldom been so pleased with any change of abode as that which took me to Greenwich. I feel thankful for your town, not only for the delightful summer my family and I have spent there, but because the health of my son William, who was not well, for some time prior to our going to Greenwich, has improved to a marked degree. I have a place in Yonkers on the Hudson that I have always believed one of the most beautiful spots in the world, but for some reason or other, the air did not seem to agree with my boy, unquote. These opinions of Greenwich, it will be noticed, come from men of all walks of life, the banker, the captain of industry, the railroad man, the artist, the magazine writer, and men in the world of books. And it will be also be observed that these opinions are the same as previously mentioned. There is a sincerity in the words of these men that admits of no doubt that they are an honest expression of their admir estimation rather, of Greenwich. Need stronger proof be given than the fact that these prominent men are or have been residents of our town. Another thing noticeable in these interviews is that most of these men lay particular stress on the fact that there are no mosquitoes in Greenwich. That is such a rarity in most towns that the absence of these pests can much to do with their looking upon Greenwich with such admiration and favor. That, of course, means that the atmosphere is healthful, for mosquitoes have a great aversion to clean, pure, sweet, embracing air. Since these series of interviews were published in the graphics some 20 years ago or so, 
many, many more millionaires and prominent men have come to live in Greenwich. And they are all still coming and will come, for where is there a town like Greenwich? No one can really predict what its future will be, but it can be, can in truth be said that it is destined to be known far and wide as the most beautiful and richest town of its size in the world. The fact, in fact, that can be and is said of it today. Thank you for listening to the Tuesday, 10th of October, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingamead, your host. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Please look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 17th of October, 2023. We'll see you then. Bye-bye now.